On this episode, we'll find out what space can teach us about life on earth and how to make a better future for all of us. You might be surprised at some of the ways space exploration is already shaping our daily lives and will continue to do so in the future. I think a permanent habitation of the moon in 10 years is, is highly probable. Going to Mars for, for visits, going to moon for visits, going to change our view, I believe, of what we are as human race. At some point in the future, the, the survival of the human race is going to have to be driven by space exploration. In billions of years from now, the, the sun is not going to be as tolerable to life as it is now. Yasmina Lazanich-Galloway runs the most successful, massive, open online course ever run in Australia. It teaches people to prepare for life on Mars, but rather than focus on Mars survival, Yasmina wants the course to help others be more creative in solving problems on Earth. Hi, my name is Yasmina Lazanich-Galloway and I'm astrophysicist at the School of Physics and Astronomy at Monash University. My background is in high-energy astrophysics, and my passion is in space exploration and interplay between science, society, and art. Yasmina, you are something of a space expert, and I know when we talk about space, sometimes one of the criticisms can be, well, who cares about space? What's the benefit? It's all very interesting and exciting, but what's the benefit for us here and now? And is there even any benefit for the future? You know, we all hear the stories about Velcro and and those kind of things. But is there anything beyond that? So this is, this is a question that we as astronomers have to uh, t- talk about a lot uh, or address a lot. And um, humans are curious. As soon as I say I'm an astronomer at a dinner party or anywhere else, I have 3,000 questions to answer. You know, what's inside black holes? Is the universe going to explode? What's going to happen? And then I say to them, well, how much would you pay to know that? Right? This mm-hmm. knowledge does not come from anywhere. So that's basic answer of if we want to gain knowledge, we have to invest in um, gaining that knowledge. But what other people don't understand often is that uh, astronomy is technologically driven. You know, 400 years ago, when a telescope was just invented, we see, we saw very blurry things. And since then, telescope became much more sophisticated. And this is where technology driven knowledge comes from. Uh, we can see within several seconds of universe exploding. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that, you know, what human potential is all about? So what people don't quite understand is how that technology then gets transferred into everything else. So Hubble Space Telescope, which is one of the most known telescopes in the world, uh, astronomers are the ones who required particular CCD built. And now everybody has CCDs in their mobile phones and they take all these awesome pictures. But at the time, there was no such CCDs that are needed for very crisp pictures. Uh, Engineers built it, astronomers needed it, and then that CCD got to be used for um, advanced uh, imaging of breast cancer, for example. So we we like to use that example as something that was not intended to be used for humanly needs, but ended up being used. And we call that um, spin-offs. We just had recently um, the Cale Review for astronomy science in Australia. And again, it's shown huge benefit to the society. Of course, we know that uh, algorithms that used to uh, design to chase black holes is now used to make Wi-Fi. And we can't live without Wi-Fi now. We constantly push boundaries of how to get this difficult information in space. 
we don't have labs like other scientists. We just have observations. Do you think we need to think about space differently? Yes, I think um, so much of our daily life depends on satellites and we're not even aware. Mm. If satellites were to shut down, uh, we, would, we would feel that very painfully. So future of economy is in space. Uh, we, space connects us. In terms of changing ourselves as human race, if we don't leave the cradle, we'll never change our primitive ways. We are so bounded by history and by mistakes we made, and we keep remaking them. But every astronaut that went to International Space Station, or even just in orbit, came back changed. Mm. You see, they come and they see Earth as a fragile, they see that thin atmosphere that supports all this amazing life on Earth. So to change our perspective, we have to change our view. So just going to International Space Station, going to space hotels, going to Mars for, for visits, going to Moon for visits, going to change our view, I believe, of what we are as human race. So to me, that's what space represents, a potential of us to really evolve to the next stage of probably, uh, hopefully, better humanity. something what's a recent um innovation or discovery uh in or about space that's got you really excited so the the reusable rockets is something that is very very exciting at the moment uh, it's becoming much cheaper it's becoming much more environmental which is again something we want so i think that's something that it's very exciting and it's inspiring for you know young people all around the world you talk a lot about the ethics of space exploration. What do you mean by ethical space exploration? Who are we being ethical to or what are we being ethical to? And why does it matter anyway? So that's a great question. Um, so we, there's a two ways of uh, answering that. One is being ethical to the places where we go. So moon or Mars or asteroids. We have moon, moon treaty and we have space treaty that says that space is for everyone. Nobody can own the space. We didn't quite polish out how would you go about then exploiting some of the resources. And that's something that uh, UN is working at the moment, for example. Uh, but another issue is being ethical about people who we send to explore the space. Um, mm. Often mm. we refer to colonizing space and colonizing is such a bad word because uh, we have, you know... Yes. <laughs> A history of, you know, a repeated history of how what colonizing means, not just for the land and destroyed native mm. life, but also who were the ones who, who were sent to colonize, right? Um, they've, been, they've been treated very badly as well. Another issue is that space should be, it's, it's a joint resource and should be beneficial to everyone. And this is what, uh, so UN has the Office of Outer um, Affairs, NOSA. And they're working on these agreements that you're lifting, you're not just, not only the most developed countries who already have developed space industries will benefit from this, but that you're lifting others behind. Um, and then the other thing about ethics is, if we go to moon, are we allowed to make it all ugly by drilling for resources? Or if we go to Mars, what right do we have to then just become vermin on the, on the you know, surface of this pristine, lovely planet. 
uh, we have a lot of philosophers and sociologists and ethicists and anthropolo anthropologists thinking about this and trying to find a way, trying to find a blueprint, how we can do this exploration or how can even maybe establish settlements, uh, human settlements, but to be in a way which does, which still respects this new environment, something that will represent better structure of human society, sustainable from the from the get-go, because you will have to be, you will have to reuse everything. You won't be able to waste anything there. So it will be sustainable from the get-go, but can we then establish not a military regime, but a societal, truly international society, uh, which can then maybe inspire earthlings to aim for the same type of um, social structure. Speaking about inspiring earthlings, you run an incredibly popular MOOC, which is a massive online open course. Anyone can do. It's like a university course that anyone can do. Um, you run a really popular one. Tell us about that course and what was your intention behind starting it? So it, it all started with me and my colleague, uh, Professor Tina Overton, chatting how we loved uh, the Martians which is book by Andy Weir, and we mentioned that we both liked the fact that finally science was presented as fun problem solving, not boring maths, not, you know, dreadful lectures that everybody fall asleep at, but truly showed what science is. And then we at the same time said, and I want to make unit based on that. And then we looked at each other and said, let's do it together. And that's how MOOC came. And the reason we wanted to make it mainly for uh, high school students is that we have problem in Australia with high school students enrolling less and less in science. So we came um, with the idea to, to use basically uh, what would be the basic resources that you would need if you had even short or long um, exploration of Mars. And so things that we take for granted on Earth, like having air, having water, having food, just from shops. So we wanted to show how science could solve this problem. We wanted to show potential technologies that are in testing phase right now. Although we aim just for high school students and maybe teachers, we are um, first MOOC that Future Learn told us that had uniform distribution of ages from 13 to 75. So everybody was interested. And then hearing from learners why they joined the course, we had basically, obviously, we had teachers and students. We had um, parents and grandparents who wanted to see what would be jobs that their children will have one day. Uh, we also had a lot of uh, professionals from law or economics who wanted to move to space industry and then wanted any kind of micro-credential they can find that it's relevant. Mm. So we really had a wonderful um, diversity of learners. And we designed MOOC to be what we call challenge-based learning. So each week they had the challenge, you know, build, build your air supply, build your water supply. So again, slightly different way of learning science, which everybody just sees through equations and, you know, dry information. And although, yes, we did have equations, you have to calculate how much air you need, you know, you can't do without math and calculations. But the challenge was there to always think and readjust and readjust. Um, as you as you learn what your needs are, 
And what we saw the best is how much learners really put themselves into their mindset and called each other by martial names and um, really made themselves feel like they're on the surface of Mars and sharing the experience from Earth. There was a diver who, for example, explained that partial pressure when we talk about you know, low and high pressure and things like that. So that was really wonderful to see that you actually build a community of learners who um, share knowledge, not just passively uh, take sort of information that we present. And tell the truth, did anyone, any of the groups come up with uh, solutions that you're, you thought, actually, that's really good, I'm going to take that. <laughs> um, I'm going to steal that idea from it and say it was mine. We've run the MOOC four times now, and every time there'll be different, depending on a cohort, there'll be different discussions and different ideas. But what came through every time is that about 50% of learners were skeptical why do we, why, why should we go to Mars? They were interested, but they were skeptical at the same time. Mm. Why should mm. we go to Mars when there's so much to solve on Earth? And all of them came after MOOC, realizing that space, space exploration does have benefit, benefit for life on Earth. And they do come out with that idea that because you have to be so sustainable when you go there, you will come back and teach Earthlings so, so this is this is the only mm. thing that I'm that I've stolen from the MOOC, and that's the the sentence that one of the learners said. It will be the other way around. The Martians will be the awesome ones who will come and teach us how to live better on Earth because they will have mm-hmm. to be awesome to survive, and therefore, they will be the ones who come back and teach us how to live in a better way, whether it's with the environment, whether it's in terms of social structure. Um, so this is, this is a great, it's not something that we uh, pushed too hard. We did have readings and discussions about that, but it's great to see that they have came up to that conclusion on their own and they mm. fight the narrative of so many sci-fi movies in which Earth is the one who's going to exploiting Mars and, and so on. Yes, and save the, the Earthlings are the, saving the day. So they start the course with PV equals NRT, but they come back as Socrates by the sound of it. Exactly. Beautifully said. <laughs> That's the one thing I remember from year 12 chemistry is PV equals NRT. Yes, Mina, it has been an absolute delight. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. And uh, I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of your podcast and I'm a big fan of sociology. So um, maybe you and I should make sociology of space exploration course to show that without sociology, you can't have proper space exploration. We will create the next big MOOC. It will be a big thing. And then finally, when I go to a dinner party, I'll get the respect I deserve. Yes, Mina, thank you so much again. Thank you very much. Adam Gilmore is Australia's very own rocket man. His company, Gilmore Space Technologies, specialises in the development of small, low-cost rockets purpose-built for today's small satellites. He's also a Monash alumni from the Faculty of Business and Economics, and he joins us from his base on the sunny Gold Coast in Queensland. I'm Adam Gilmore. I'm the CEO of Gilmore Space Technologies. It's a company that's building rockets to take small satellites into space, and our first launch should be in 2022. Adam Gilmore, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Very good to be here, Susan. I want to start by asking you a predictive question. 
what do you think the world would look like one year from now, 10 years from now, if we didn't change the way we think about space exploration? Okay, I think one year is too short um, for me to really give you, I don't think much would change in a year, but I think in 10 years, if we keep going on the push to space exploration, there will be bases on Mar- uh, on the moon, sorry. There'll be, I think, a permanent uh, habitation of the moon in 10 years is, is highly probable. Um, and the an initial forays into exploration of the surface of Mars by people is also going to be around 10 years away. And I think, you know, one of the things I like is... Uh, People have been living on the space station permanently since the year 2000. You know, so there's a whole lot of adults that are walking around the planet that have born and lived in an environment where there's always been somebody permanent living, permanently living in space. And I think that'd be fantastic if it was on the moon. I think it's a heck of a lot more inspirational on the moon because mm. everybody sees the moon. Like you can almost see the moon every day, right? And to look up at the moon and imagine that there's people living and working on the moon. I think would be a massive inspiration for humanity. Um, very Apollo-like in terms of getting people inspired into STEM and stuff like that. And mm. I think it's inevitable that you know, humanity does um, live and work in space in the future. And you know, the next 10 years will be a really good stepping stone for that. And there's a lot of spin-off technologies. Everybody loves to talk about spin-off technologies, but they're real spin-off technologies. One of the, the hardest things about living in space is resources. You know, you, you can't just go to Coles or Woolies and, and pick up the groceries. You know, you can't go and turn on a tap and get mm. unlimited water. So you have to conserve everything really, really carefully. And there's technology around that. There's technology about recycling water effectively. There's technology around recycling oxygen effectively. And there's emerging technology about how to grow plants in a closed loop cycle, which is going to be necessary for you know long duration space exploration. And all of these things can come back to Earth and vastly change the way humans use resources on Earth. So the, the, it, the technology is already there. The problem with it is it's extremely expensive. So if people figure out how to do that on the cheap, then we won't have a lot of problems with water. We won't have a lot of problems with food. Um, we'll be able to bring a lot of that closer to where urban communities are. And that's, that's probably one of the biggest things. Space exploration technology will give humanity for the, for the future, for the long future. about Gilmore Technologies and the work you do, but specifically tell us what motivated you to start that in the first place. Okay, so I've always loved space. Um, I always I always thought it was kind of an unreachable thing that it was, you know, the realm of governments and, um, and billions and billions of dollars. And then in 2004, there was a competition called the X Prize that um, the competition was you had to have a space plane that took three people to space and repeated in three months. And the competition was won in 2004. So a company did that successfully. Investment into that project was $25 million. And mm. I thought, wow, if, if people can, can go to space for $25 million, you know, that's a game changer. Um, mm-hmm. So that's when I started getting really interested in space. I was a banker at the time. I was working at Citibank. I was in financial markets, dealing with billions of dollars a day and flows going around. So $25 million was not a lot of money. 
then the financial crisis came and that distracted me being in a bank. But probably <laughs> towards 2015, I started getting very serious about it, doing business plans. I looked at a lot of different space technologies and the thing that really stood out was access to space was still very, very difficult. You know, it's mm -hmm. great to have an idea of a satellite component or a space component or a rover that can go on the moon, but getting it up to space can, you know, back then anyway, was costing tens to hundreds of millions of dollars. So that's right, so that's, so that's why the 25 million was just so impressive to you because before that it was hundreds of millions. Hundreds of millions, billions, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and so I thought, right, if I want to develop space technology in general, I need a way of getting access to space easily. And the best way to get access to space easily is to build your own rocket. So <laughs> yeah, I just said, right, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to have to do it myself. I'm going to do it myself, yeah. So, <laughs> so I spent a lot of time thinking about rocket technology, talking to people, saving money to invest. Um, and then, you know, I hired my first rocket engineer in 2014. And now we've got 55 people in the company and probably 40 of them are rocket engineers. And so we're building a launch vehicle that will initially take small satellites into space. But our ultimate game, our goal is to take people to space. So we're going to do bigger and bigger vehicles till we get to a size that can take people to space. So when, how long realistically do you think it'll be until you can get people up there? I think 10 years. It's going to take a while. Mm -hmm. It really depends on how much money we can get. Um, if I had unlimited cash, I'd probably say seven. Have you already booked your seat in that first rocket? No, I probably won't fly on the first one. I mean, we've got people, like a lot of Air Force guys are willing to be test pilots on the mm. first one. So I'll probably go second. Depends <laughs> how much we test it. So what do you think the changes in technology have meant for space exploration? What's been something you've seen recently that has really excited you in space technology? Uh, I think it's it's the there's a, a trend of miniaturization, and that's basically the same kind of tech that's giving your phone a lot of um, power is in small satellites as well. So, really, what I've seen is in the last five to eight years, you know, satellites that were once the size of a bus can now be the size of a bar fridge, mm -hmm. and satellites that were the size of a big fridge can now be the size of a shoebox. So, I think the shoebox satellites. Um, there's been a few missions with shoebox satellites to the moon and Mars, not enough. But to me, that's super exciting because you literally, like our rocket, probably by 23, 2023 or 2024, we'll have capability of taking small payloads to the moon and Mars. And we're probably going to sell it for $10 million. So you can make a three U or even a six U. So that's like one shoebox or two shoeboxes together, a satellite with enough capability to have sensors on it, send it to the moon or Mars, put it into orbit. And the whole mission could be less than $20 million. You know, it's orders of magnitude cheaper than what current missions are. There's, a, there's missions going to Mars now that are, I think the cheapest one's probably a couple of hundred million dollars and the most expensive one's about $2 billion. So if you can do deep space exploration for 20 to $30 million, that's a game changer. What have been the biggest challenges you've faced other than needing more cash? Uh, just hiring talent. Australia doesn't have a space industry. Uh, there's no previous rocket companies that I can grab talent from. So, you know, we've, we've had to basically get people from overseas that have worked on rockets in other 
companies to come and join us. We've hired a lot of graduates as well. We've hired some Monash graduates actually um, mm. last year. And so we're training a lot of Australian graduates on how to make rockets. Uh, but we needed the um, we needed the foreign expertise. That that was the trickiest bit to convince people to come and join a wacky Australian rocket company. It's a lot easier now. What do you think about the future of space exploration from Australia? Do you feel that there's enough um, public and political will to make it something that is more organic here? No, not yet. I think the um, the government is still quite risk averse on, um, on on space technology. I think they're trying to make baby steps. I think they'd love to be able to do bigger and better space missions and they're just nervous to commit a lot of money or, or political will to the deal. But the government announced $150 million for the moon Mars missions. And if mm. they spend that correctly, they will get a piece of space hardware either on or orbiting the moon. And I hope we'll be involved in that. And that will be a really good first step to do space exploration on the cheap. What I'd love to see Australia do is become the world leaders in in space exploration on the cheap. You know, do it mm. an order of magnitude cheaper than all the rest of the countries, and that that would really be a good standard for us to to, to achieve. Is it difficult to sell the value of doing space exploration on the cheap? Because I imagine there'd be some people who think this is the last place we want to be doing things on the cheap. Everything must be the most expensive because that would mean the best or the safest or the most reliable. Oh, look, there's definitely, you know, if you want reliability at costs, because that means you've tested it a lot. Um, but I don't think there's um, political will to spend a lot of money on space exploration in Australia. Um, that's why I think if we can master doing it for really cheap and do cheap missions that don't, you know, blow the budget and save a lot of taxpayer money, I think that'll be a really good outcome for Australia. The government really wants to improve STEM and, and get more and more people mm. into STEM. They really, they really think there's going to be a shortfall of STEM um, talent in the future. And I think, you know, space exploration is a great way to get people to like STEM. If people realise in high school that mm. there's a potential that they can join a company or a research institution that's sending payloads to the moon or Mars or beyond. Mm. I, you know, I think that, that should get a lot of kids inspired. Adam Gilmore, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure, Susan. leads the Space Habitat Studio as part of the Monash Bachelor of Architecture in the Faculty of Art Design and Architecture. She and architecture students Patul and Dimmer tell us what it's like to design for entirely alien habitats. I'm Danica Karajic. I'm a PhD researcher and a tutor in architecture and interior architecture with interest in critical spatial practice, uh, art experimentation, research, uh, student workshops, and uh, performance architecture. Hi, my name is Dimash Shimbo. I'm a second year student at Monash Architecture. Other academic interests include psychology and sociology, and I want to find a way to apply them to architecture. Hello, my name is Betul Deniz Kalikçe. I am in second year of Bachelor of Architecture and I'm really interested in um, space architecture. Okay, Denitza, Dima and Batul, thank you so much for joining us today. Denitza, I'm going to start with you. 
because you are, you lead the space Habitat Studio um, as part of the Monash Bachelor of Architecture. I don't think many people would be aware that there are already people and people in Australia who are actually thinking about what architecture in space should and could look like. Tell us a bit about your work. What I found interesting about the topic of, uh, of space architecture is actually the relationship uh, between body and uh, built environment. So I approach it from that, from that perspective, along with, uh, with uh, my love for uh, science fiction, especially science fiction movies and, and TV shows. And uh, to be honest, like the, the road that led me to, to, to propose this studio was a bit funny because I, uh, I found the website that had uh, detailed architectural plans of the ships from Star Trek uh, franchise. <laughs> you know, my, my drive was to make it, to try to make it interesting for, for students, but it's really interesting it raises interesting questions of human behavior and relationship with architecture when it's not uh, mm. in earth environment. Yeah. Dima, you did a, a unit on this space architecture. First of all, why did you decide, decide to take this course? Um, I think Danica undersold herself just then <laughs> um, because she didn't say that it's really, really fun. The actual studio, so in the start of the semester, we're given a choice of what studios we want to go to. Um, and this studio just happened to be my first priority because there's a lot of things that you can do at uni that could be interesting or exciting. It's usually never both. Um, but this one just sort of balanced it out for me. And it was just this opportunity to just go out and sort of be wacky and also inventive and also useful. Yeah, but Tool, you did the course as well as a student. What were you expecting to happen in the course? So I was expecting to, um, you know, uh, find uh, find out just the environmental conditions in, you know, Mars and the moon and how that actually changes the context for um, building in space. And um, and that's like that's exactly what we did. We actually um, went into depth with, um, you know, finding uh, how the gravity affects um, our movement um, when we're still and how we use space. And um, yeah, I expected to learn all about that. And it was amazing to actually be able to learn it. What was the most interesting thing you both learned, Dima and Batul, in the course? I realised that architecture basically is something that revolves around humans but is controlled by nature. So I think that, you know, um, we always try and fit it to the human needs, but we have to consider what the nature is able to give us where we build. And I think that that connection in between them, I never saw that before, nature and humanity. What space architecture taught me is that earth problems have to stay on earth. You shouldn't bring them with you to space. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, if that's, if that's how you solve Earth problems, by sort of motivating yourself uh, for a better future, then sure. Denitza, what were some of the, um, the rules or restrictions you did put on students? Did, did they have to... Um, factor in different astrophysics of of their designs like did they have to do different designs if it were the moon 
than if it were, say, for Mars. How much uh, shaping did you provide them? So we had to imagine scenar certain scenarios. Uh, the, the task was to design an emergency shelter for astronauts on, on Mars. Mm -hmm. this, this project, this task required students to actually think about not only uh, environmental conditions, but also about what is it that can happen to astronauts when they are going roaming around Mars collecting uh, samples for, for research. And you know, to sum up all the situations, to simplify them into a few simple situations like uh, injury, suit, suit malfunction, uh, malfunction of or damage of the of the suit, and then you know, like this was pretty simple because uh, we didn't care about aesthetics. Mm. It was really mm. we didn't care about how um, the astronauts will move within the, the, the shelter because it really was about the most uh, optimal space that is for emergency. So you just, you know, sit or lay down and wait. So mm -hmm. that, was, that was way different than the second task that, that was situated on the moon where we imagine a small colony which was also the, the growing food. So we looked into, um, you know, sustainable practices, uh, food practices on Earth, trying to reimagine them and place them, replace them under, under, moon, under the moon's surface. And then, of course, you know, like there was this aspect that required each student to think about um, individual living unit for the client that was inspired by Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> here, we come, here we come again, which, you know, it, it wasn't really, uh, I think, uh, most students found it really funny with really naive uh, um, special effects. But yeah, like this was more complex because it, uh, it asked students to think about the client, to think about how they as small community would communicate and, you know, what... Uh, possible relationships they can create around the communal garden. So it's not just a communal garden, it's also something else, mm -hmm. something for, you know, like um, social interaction. Dima and Batul, is there anything that you have developed or seen others develop in this course that you think, actually, we could use that here on earth as well? I mean, it, it's kind of the, the other way around from, oh, I invented this, we can use this on Earth. It was more like, oh, I reinvented this. Now I see why this works on Earth. Because some things you just sort of take for granted or never even think about them. But once you look through that prism, if you can look on Earth from Mars, it's a lot more clear why certain structures are just the way they are and why they have to be. Mm. So... Yeah, that justifies a lot of those like weird architectural compromises on Earth because things just have to be a certain way sometimes. You know, being on the moon, um, not having um, atmosphere or food to, I'm sorry, the sun to grow the food, we sort of realised what we took for granted on Earth. And now we, when we're building on the moon, we have to be way more considerate of the radiation, the um, atmosphere and everything else. So I think that careful process when designing 
where um, we sit down and we say, okay, we have to make this sustainable. We have to make this, you know, um, long lasting. We have to make it reproducing. Um, so those ideas and those um, critical, that critical thinking, if we take that back to earth and everyone actually practices it as they build, I think we'll all have a better environment to live in. But I, I know it's not that easy to apply, but I think just that critical thinking can be applied here. Denitza, Dimmer and Batul, this has been incredibly interesting and quite exciting. Thank you so much for your time today, all of you. Sounds like the opportunities and potential of space exploration will continue to grow. In our next episode, we'll round up all the best practical tips from our experts so you can take advantage too. As always, more information about what we talked about today can be found in the show notes. I'll see you next time on What Happens Next. 